Hello, welcome to this Head Talks podcast. I'm Terry Stiastny and I'll be talking to people with interesting things to say about mental health. With me is Professor Paul Gilbert, who's a pioneer of compassion-focused therapy. Why is compassion at the heart of what you do and at the heart of the kind of therapy you offer and encourage? Okay, so that's a great question because there are three basic themes to it. The first theme is that during the 80s, we were working with a therapy called cognitive therapy. And this therapy helps people to identify sequence of thoughts that are associated with depression or anxiety. So in the case of anxiety, it may be thoughts about becoming ill or having a heart attack or uh, whatever. And in the case of depression, it may be thoughts of being inferior and worthless. So in cognitive therapy, what you do is you help people generate alternatives to stand back and think, well, if a friend was talking to you, what would they say about you? Uh, if you was to see this, if you weren't anxious, how would you see the situation? So we knew that a lot of clients could do that. They could generate alternative thoughts. And to some degree, they'd recognize that the way they were thinking was a little bit illogical. But just generating alternative thoughts didn't always help them. So one day, I'd like to say that it was a stroke of wisdom, but it was simply serendipity. Um, I asked one of our clients, when you hear these thoughts in your mind, how do you actually hear your alternatives? So this was a lady who'd been adopted and had always felt that she wasn't lovable and wasn't wanted, but she did have an excellent marriage and lovely children and so on, so she could identify the fact that although I feel unlovable and unwanted, that probably goes back to my background because I have a loving husband and so forth, but I can't feel it. So the way that she thought about the alternatives was the following. Well, come on. You've got a loving husband, haven't you? You've got children who care about you. Pull yourself together. So it turned out that even when people were trying to be helpful to themselves, the emotional tone that they were using to try to look at alternatives and be more evidence-based, if you like, was very hostile. So we started to focus on helping people create friendly inner tones inside of their heads to become a friend to themselves, if you like, So imagine what it would be like if somebody really cared about you. How would they speak to you? Not just what would they say, but how would they do it? And it turned out that a lot of our clients couldn't do that. And uh, when they started to do it, they would become very sad and, and, and so on. So that was one of the first strands of teaching people to generate compassionate, warm inner tone when they were trying to come up with alternative coping thoughts. The second dimension was I had for many, many years been interested in Buddhism. And within the Buddhist traditions, there are a whole series of exercises and practice that are developed for compassion, to bring a more compassionate mind into existence, to cultivate the compassionate mind. So that became a strand that kind of started to interweave with our desires to create a more internal, compassionate way of thinking. And then the third strand was really what the science was telling us about how affiliative emotion works in the body. So it has become clear that when we have friendly emotional tones and when people are friendly to us and kind to us, this has a major impact on how our brains work and how our body works, particularly an area of the body which is called the vagus, which is the vagal nerve. And so by training people in compassion, we're actually training and stimulating different physiological systems within them that are conducive to well-being and coping. So those are the three things stimulating compassion uh, in a processes to help people with alternative thinking, integrating Buddhist practices, breathing practices, and so on and so on, and utilizing 
the sciences from the physical sciences of how our bodies and brains work, particularly when they're tuned in to affiliation, friendliness, and conversion. And I understand you've also drawn on evolutionary psychology, how we've evolved as humans to try to explain why those reactions arise in people, particularly those who are anxious or under stress. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, that's an incredibly important point that you raise because basically we have been built by DNA. We know we're part of the flow of life. We're a species like any other species on this planet. So, you know, our arms and our legs and our bodies are all built for us, but so is our brain. So is our capacity for anger, anxiety, depression, uh, love, sex. All of that has been built in to us as potentials. The problem for us, however, is that we also have a new brain which is capable of thinking and reasoning and planning and anticipating. And when these two brains get together, they can do wonderful things like medicine and culture, but they can also do some horrendous things, such as the Holocaust and the Roman games and all the rest. And, of course, they can also form loops in the mind so that we become self-critical or ruminate and so on and so on. So understanding how our minds have been constructed means that a lot of what goes on in them is not really our fault. In fact, it's not our fault at all. We are experiencing the constructions of a mind that has been built by DNA. And if you've had a life which has been tricky or difficult for you, this can make this brain of yours even more difficult. So, for example, if I had been kidnapped as a three-day-old baby into a violent drug gang and brought out like this, this version of Paul Gilbert wouldn't exist. A totally different version would exist. Even my genetic expressions would be different. So the way in which culture interacts or my upbringing interacts with this biology that nature has given me, both of those things were not under my control. I didn't choose my DNA and I didn't choose my upbringing, but I have to cope with the consequences of having these genes and of having the upbringing. And the more we approach that difficulty of having a, a difficult mind that can cause suffering to ourselves and others, the more we can approach that with a compassionate orientation, the greater the chance is that we'll be able to bring some harmony, some peacefulness, some desire to be helpful rather than harmful to it. And who are the kind of people that you found benefit most from this kind of approach, which goes beyond the traditional CBT approach? Well, it goes beyond the traditional CBT approach because it focuses, as you say, on an evolutionary system so that your brain is biologically designed to respond to signals of compassion and kindness because, as a mammal, we, from the day that we're born, we need to be cared for. And we need to be emotionally regulated by our carers. So babies and children can't regulate their own emotions. They have to have parents do it for them. They can't feed themselves. They can't, you know, they can't comfort themselves. So we have biological minds that are designed to be responsive to that. So the people that really respond to this kind of therapy are individuals, or the people that you work hard with, are the people for whom that hasn't always developed in the way that it might have done. So they struggle with being compassionate to themselves or trusting other people. So we developed, and we have, are developing, a whole range of interventions which are designed to help people begin to stimulate these basic biological systems that are designed to regulate emotion. And that when they work well, they do. Like, you know, when they work well, the parents can calm the child. The child does get excited and feel joy in the experience of the parents but it doesn't work the parents are neglectful or whatever it is those systems don't develop in the way that they might so we need to train people so they can get that system going again and in a practical sense how does that work what are the first steps that you would take with somebody who's having those kind of thoughts but not the kind of feelings that allow them to 
calm themselves down and treat themselves kindly. There's a whole series of practices. Firstly, there are practices of training the body to support the mind. So that means understanding how posture operates in terms of stimulating different emotions. We can have postures which are confident, postures which are threat-rooted. There are breathing practices that stimulate your parasympathetic system, stimulate the soothing system, as we call it, particularly breaths at around five breaths per minute, where you're focusing on a very gentle in-breath and a gentle out-breath, breathing down into your diaphragm, five breaths per minute. And with each on the out-breath, really focusing on the sensation of body slowing down and then mind slowing down on the out-breath and experiencing the feeling of body grounding becoming heavier. So we do a lot of body work, a little bit on yoga. Then we teach people about compassionate voice tones. We might get them to read statements, coping statements, like, you know, supposing you somebody's worried about doing something, and a coping statement may be, well, I've done this before and I've practiced this, and if it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world, I can have another go. And then we'd get them to read that in, say, an irritated way and then a very compassionate way and getting them to notice the difference in the emotional tone that they use the thought. We might help them with facial expressions. So we do a lot of this sort of body, voice, tone, breathing work. Then the next thing is we use imagery work. So we might use what we call acting techniques of getting people to imagine that they are the most compassionate person they can imagine. And if they had those qualities, how would they be? You know, so maybe they'd be somebody who was very um, patient or very tolerant. So they'd have a certain, you know, they'd have wisdom, they'd understand the nature of life and so on and so on. But life can be a struggle. So they would then take on this acting role. Like I, if I was the most compassionate person I could be, this is how I would be. This is how I would think. And it's quite amazing that when people put themselves into a compassionate mind state, that, okay, if I was compassionate, then I would do this or I would think this they discover that they've got a lot of the internal wisdom that they need in order to be able to work with some of their own life difficulties. But if they get trapped in angry states or anxious states or depressed states, that tends to close down problem solving. But by doing the breathing, doing the focusing, doing the intentionality and focusing on this, if I was a compassionate person, this is what I would do, they actually begin to find their own solutions to their difficulties. To oversimplify that, probably, it's sort of fake it until you make it. It's not, it's not oversimplifying. It's a great one, that. Yes, so the practice, okay, it's the practice. So when you start off, you might not be very good at it. So it's about preparing to have another go. So learning the piano or to play tennis or whatever it is, the more you do it, the better you get. And um, it's the same with compassion cultivation. The more you do it, the better you get. The more mindfully you do it, the more mindful you become, the more aware you become of the things that allow you to do it and get in the way of doing it. So as with everything in life, practice is the thing that... So keep going, and as you say, fake it till you make it. And I think your definition that, of compassion that you work with is perhaps slightly different from the definition that we use in everyday language. Yes, yeah, so we use a, a fairly standard definition from the Buddhist traditions, but I think what is now been adopted by the science of compassion is that compassion has two components. One is a preparedness to be a sensitivity to suffering the self and others, to, to notice, to be a tuning in, not to turning away, a preparedness to engage with it. Because we have, and as you probably know, a lot of people who have mental health problems are wanting to get rid of it. They don't want to engage with it. They want to be sensitive to suffering. They don't want it. So they're always on the run. So this is turning people to become sensitive, to begin to understand it, to begin to explore it, be that pain within yourself or others. And the second dimension, which is very important and often forgotten, 
is then committing to actions to try to alleviate or prevent suffering. Now the second part of it means that we have to develop the wisdom to know what to do because you may have an intention to be helpful but you haven't got a clue what to do. So if I see somebody fall into the Thames and I think, oh, I'm going to save them, that's great intention, I'm sensitive, I, I take action, but it's not wise because I can't swim. <laughs> okay, if you want to be a doctor, that's great, and you're sensitive, and everything, but not if you're not going to study, so you don't know what you're doing. So compassion has these two aspects to it. One is this engagement, but also the preparedness to develop wisdom to actually know what to do. If you could give somebody that's interested in this approach one piece of advice really to help themselves become more compassionate towards themselves and others what would that be well that's a great question so the key thing is being aware of what compassion is you know the sensitivity to suffering and so forth and the next really is making a decision that each day you're going to try and do one compassionate thing for yourself and another person because we know that when people start tuning in to be compassionate to others that's also good for the brain so practicing every day the desire to try as best you can to act as a compassionate person that is going to try as best they can to help people and certainly not purposely or carelessly cause harm. Now, if you take that attitude to yourself and to others, that will help you. And that means that when it comes to yourself, watch out for your self-criticism because sometimes self-criticism can be very harsh and very unpleasant. We call ourselves horrible names. That's harmful. So if you make a commitment to be compassionate, you notice, oh, I'm being very critical in a way that's hurtful to myself. I'm not I'm going to kind of shift away from that and focus on how would I have a compassionate voice to this difficulty. So the the point that you make is a good one is that making the decision to pursue a compassionate lifestyle and then step by step, bit by bit, trying to practice that in your everyday life. And you can go onto the websites and you can see breathing exercises and meditation exercises so you can begin to develop your compassion cultivation. But the first thing is really recognizing Compassion is a way of living which will help you to deal with life difficulties. Paul Gilbert, thank you very much for talking My to pleasure. us.